We be old school. Yeah, old school. We be old school. Yeah, old school. What's up, everyone? You're back in the Hit Factory. Aaron's here. Carly's here. And today, we are discussing what is, in my opinion, one of the unsung masterpieces of the 90s by one of cinema's most underrated auteurs. It is The Ice Storm, directed by Ang Lee from 1997. Um, I had seen this movie before. Carly, you had not. This I was had your, not. This was your first time. First time seeing it and would agree with you that it is highly underrated. I don't even remember hearing about this movie back in the day. It was, and I think I mentioned this to you, one that I had never heard of until I was taken aback by a really beautifully designed cover for a Criterion Collection DVD version of this mm-hmm. on the shelf at like a Barnes & Noble during their, uh, yes. their big Criterion sales that they did. Purchased it on a whim because I had $30 burning a hole in my pocket and it was 50% off. It's like the same label trickery of wine bottles. You pick the wine that looks the prettiest with the prettiest label. I am completely a sucker for (laughs) good uh, branding and labeling. Yes, I make most of my consumer choices based on who makes the prettiest designs. I'm the same with like album artwork. Uh, By any means, yeah, this film was one that I had never heard of, despite having a familiarity with Ang Lee. My mother was a huge Sense and Sensibility fan. It's still, I think, one of her top five all-time favorite movies. It's a goodie. And had seen Hulk at this point, remembered Brokeback Mountain, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. The the guy has a formidable career. I'm always, like, when I was going back through his roster of films... I was impressed by the breadth of his portfolio and also by how diverse the films that he makes are. Yeah, and he's had a couple of different periods, right? He had sort of more sort of quirky uh, Billy Wilder style comedies in his early run of of, uh, Chinese language films Mm -hmm. and then did... Some period pieces, Sense and Sensibility, going way back. And then this film, set in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. Uh, He did Hulk, so he had his kind of like comic book era before anybody did comic book stuff. Right. The film is often derided, but there is some really good stuff going on there. I really like his version of Hulk. I think that more so than any other filmmaker, his film feels like not necessarily taking a comic book page and making it cinematic but does this really interesting integration of feeling like you are reading a comic book come to life. I don't know. He's, he's a very interesting director. But he went on and, and did a couple of like very serious films at the beginning of the millennium with Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon and Brokeback Mountain, which got him a ton of acclaim. Mm-hmm. And he's kind of in a weird like special effects cinematic trickery phase now where okay. like Life of Pi was sort of maybe his last really great film doing mm-hmm. a bunch of CGI and cool effects. And then he did Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk. And latest one is Gemini Man with Will Smith. Ah, okay. Both of which are done in some sort of high frame rate that makes everything look way too realistic and not cinematic. And everything is kind of creepy. Uncanny experience. Valley exactly. stuff. Um, this film, as we'll get into right now with the numbers, has... 
probably like a once in a lifetime or once in a generation cast of seasoned vets and young up-and-comers. Which makes it all the more jarring that I've never heard of this movie because so many famous people are in it. Everyone's in it. It is absolutely wild. And it's just a brilliant movie. It's, Mm -hmm. It's really lovely. It's very lyrical. I think I probably... Sold this movie to you completely wrong. I you one thousand percent did. I, I was like expecting a comedy or like some sort of weird like in my mind the way you had described it to me. I was anticipating the ref. <laughs> you know. With, no, it is with Dennis Leary. And- <laughs> very far from the ref. It's so not that. The tone of and like I think the genre of the film is remains kind of enigmatic and it it vacillates mm-hmm. a lot. It definitely feels kind of like a mid-century melodrama. It has that very poetic score and those like sort of long takes and and close-ups with a lot of emotion in people's faces. Yep. But it also is kind of blackly funny. Like there are moments in this movie that are so brutal you're laughing, but also just outright just like funny dynamics between the characters. Well, and it's highly satirical. He 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 really does a lot of sort of biting commentary. He's he's mordant i should say in his expression his style is very biting in this movie his critiques are very flatly dark and so i found it hard to actually laugh even during the funny parts of this movie because the overwhelming weight of his uh expression in this movie is inescapable there's a report that he went through, I think, 18 different cuts of this film uh, before they finally settled on a tone and a, a rhythm, especially at the end where uh, all of the different character stories sort of intertwine and come together and, and envelop one another through the course of the titular storm. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting that you say that that there's kind of like a biting satirical edge to this. I have a slightly different take on exactly what he's trying to evoke and what he's saying about the particular time period mm-hmm. and by proxy what he's saying about our current period. Yeah. But I think one thing that we both kind of agreed on or that it seems that we agree on based on the conversation already is that Ang Lee is somebody I think because of his origins outside of America and yes. outside of the political and social landscape of the sort of cultural revolution of the United States at the time is someone who is is able to like see the forest for the trees, right? Totally. Uh, you know, very apt metaphor given the setting of this film, right? Absolutely, <laughs> in in New Canaan, Connecticut. But yes, it it just seems like he is somebody who has made a really American film in a way that a lot of American directors probably couldn't because of how proximate they were to the experience. So entrenched. Well, he's from Taiwan, right? Right. And so uh, from what I know about him, he grew up watching American films in Taiwan. And the kinds of American films that they're showing in Taiwan are the kinds of films that he's modeling this movie after, the sort of mid-century dramas, as you say. If you think about the experience of a young person in Taiwan in the 70s and 80s, watching American movies, I think a lot of that comes through in the way that he delivers this film and its messages. Um, As we already mentioned, this movie was directed by Ang Lee. Oh, is it? It is, released in 1997. Um, Ang Lee has two career-long collaborators. One of them uh, is James Seamus, who wrote the screenplay here. 
Uh, he's also the CEO of Focus Features. Really? Yeah. And okay. uh, so of Aang's 14 feature films, he has written all but five of them and produced all but three. Um, and then his other longtime collaborator is the editor Tim Skyers, who has a credit as editor of all of Ang Lee's films, with the exception of Brokeback Mountain. All right. So these two both lend their talents to the ice storm. And uh, there is definitely, I think, a familiarity with each of those men's work amongst the other players in that kind of trifecta. Mm -hmm. Another person here who does really great work is the composer Michael Dana, who uh, lends an awesome score to this film, which we will definitely talk about. Awesome, but extremely Spartan in its usage, in its, I should say, in its deployment. Um, so Michael Dana contributes the score here uh, and then followed it up in 1999, uh, working with Angley again on Ride with the Devil. Don't know it. <laughs> uh, Toby is in this one again. Oh, Skeet films. Ulrich is in it as well. Good old Skeet. Yeah, Jeffrey Wright as well. Another great cast, one that we will probably end up having to do for this. It's a Civil War period piece. So okay. through the 90s, just doing English language little period dramas. Good for him. Uh, but Michael Dana also lent the score to Hulk, Life of Pi, and Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk. Won an Oscar for the Life of Pi score mm. that he contributed. Like... I think the, the general American public, this uh, film was not noticed much by the award circuit as well. Um, Seamus did win the Best Screenplay Award at the 97 Cannes Film Festival. Okay. And Sigourney Weaver landed a nomination uh, for Best Supporting Actress at the Golden Globes. But no Oscar nominations to speak of and, uh, and, and pretty lean in other awards corners as well. It did open, and I know this only because of... Uh, a few reviews that I read about it. It did open the 35th annual New York Film Festival. Was okay. the was the star opener for that. It had more recognition and appreciation among the the festival crowd and the artsy movie types yeah. that know about these cinephiles. We'll call them. I have a litmus test with with uh, American films, and it's often if they are completely ignored by the general public and the award circuit. Um, but also seem to do really well at con. Mm -hmm. I will generally like that thing. <laughs> um, they they That's are a good legend. They are pretty good at at picking, if not always great, at least very interesting movies to experience and watch. Um, but that is really the the breadth and scope of the crew here. As we already said, the cast is absolutely stacked. You've got Kevin Klein, Joan Allen, Sigourney Weaver, Jamie Sheridan. Henry Zerny and Allison Janney in the adult cast here, all great uh, character actors doing so many people. bang up jobs. Um, and then for the young up and comers, the uh, the sort of next generation of great Hollywood stars, you've got Tobey Maguire, Christina Ricci, Elijah Wood, Katie Holmes, David Crumholz, and the young man playing uh, Sandy, Sandy Carver, is Adam Han Bird. Who I definitely recognize from something, but didn't care enough to look it up. Yeah, he is in a film by Jodie Foster, in which he is the titular character. Escape Room. No. What's it called? <laughs> no, no. She did not direct that. <laughs> um, this one is from like 1991. It's called like Little Man, Little Man Tate 
That's what it's called. Little Man Tate. That's not what I know him from, but I'll I'll look it up. He's one also day. Uh, the young version of Robin Williams in Jumanji. Oh, that's that's what it fucking is. Yep, that is what it is. <laughs> um, so he's in those films and uh, and like Halloween H two O, the okay. one from like two thousand. Got it. Um, but I guess he uh, he's a writer now. He like develops and writes video games and and things like that. Cool. So, yeah, really cool. His Twitter handle is Big Man Tate. He grew up, but he's still still Big Man Tate. Still Big Man Tate, All living right. the dream. Uh, and that's really about it for for the numbers. Shall I take a crack at the plot as well? Yes, please do. What is this movie about? <laughs> I'm gonna tell you. I'm gonna tell you a little bit about the movie. As we've already mentioned, the film is set in the winter of 1973, more or less just over the course of a handful of days. Thanksgiving break. During Thanksgiving break, the film basically follows two families in a small suburb new canaan connecticut is that a real place it is a real place cool and in fact um one thing i guess i, I forget failed to mention is that the film is also based on a novel written in 1994 by a gentleman named rick moody who is from new canaan connecticut it is more or less an autobiographical novel um, which he reveals i guess in sort of the postscript and final chapters of the book that he is in fact paul toby mcguire's character ah interesting yes um, so the film is set in New Canaan, Connecticut, just like the book, uh, in the winter of 1973. You follow two families. One is the Hoods, Ben, Elena, Kevin Klein, and Joan Allen, and their children, Wendy and Paul, played by Christina Ricci and Toby Maguire. This is a good refresher for me because I don't remember anyone's name in this movie. <laughs> we'll just call them by their <laughs> actor names, which is always, I think, a good rule of thumb. Yep. But... Uh, then you have the Carvers. Jane and Jim are the uh, paternal units there. Sigourney Weaver and Jamie Sheridan. And their two sons, Elijah Wood, who is playing Mikey Carver. And then the youngest, Sandy Carver, played by Adam Hanbird, Little Man Tate. Little Man. Yep. The film is basically set amidst the ongoing Watergate scandal. Nixon's on TV a lot. Christina Ricci's character, Wendy, is following along very attentively, having phone conversations with Paul while he's at uh, boarding school, Mm -hmm. telling him all the things about uh, about the events. No one else really seems particularly entrenched or interested in it. You hear it in the background audio of like murmurs at a cocktail party or a drugstore, but the main characters themselves outside of Wendy, do not care about what's going on. No, not really. There's a brief mention or allusion to Deep Throat, Mm -hmm. but the film, not the actor in the political scandal at an early dinner party scene with the Carvers and the Hoods Mm -hmm. and some other families. But there are a lot of sort of open secrets amongst these families and uh, the sort of societal fabric is starting to tear at the seams. Uh, The kids are all experimenting with drugs, alcohol, and sex, including the youngest members of of the households, Wendy, who's like 14, and Mikey, um, Elijah Wood, who are frequently just dry humping and feeling each other up wherever they can find Mm -hmm. a a private corner. Uh, There's a moment where Christina Ricci's character also goes into the bathroom with Sandy, little man Tate, and uh, tries to coerce him into showing her his penis while she also flashes her nethers. She's all over the place. She just wants, I think, the shock value and the attention more than anything else, but also is just exploring 
Um, Paul, Tobey Maguire's character, like we said, is at a private school smoking a lot of weed with David Crumholes, his roommate, <laughs> and affectionately just smitten and, and head over heels for a really kind of bland young Katie Holmes, yeah. whose name is wonderful, Libets Casey. It's like the crispiest, waspiest. Just like old money, old East, money Coast East Coast name. Coast name ever, Libets. And it, uh, it's the, the punchline of many a great line, including <laughs> one around the dinner table where Kevin Klein's delivery of the name is, is something else. What's the name of this girl with the fancy New York address? Libets. Libets Casey. Libets? What sort of name is Libets? Um, by any means, beyond that, the adults are also doing a lot of uh, weird things together. Kevin Klein is having an affair with Sigourney Weaver, Jane, often sleeping together in the guest room of the Carver household. Mm -hmm. Jim is traveling very frequently without his children even knowing that he's gone. Elena is just sort of a, a shell of her former self. She longs to feel some sort of passion for something. In a really, really great scene, she is inspired to take Christina Ricci's bike out for a stroll and mimics her behavior by uh, shoplifting from the corner pharmacy. Unlike her daughter, who's much more adept, she gets <laughs> caught uh, and is forced to pay for the item she tries to pocket. The film is really just the interactions of these characters that all culminate at the end in the parents going collectively to a key party, which is, uh, I guess, a trend of the era in which a lot of wife swapping happens based on the men d dropping their keys in a bowl for the women to fish out and then new couples couple up and go home with one another or whatever they do. It's the age of the sexual revolution. Right, exactly. And it's, uh, it's a lot of these sort of suburban families feeling that seep of the late 60s, early 70s into their household and trying to do something rebellious along with the youth of the era. Mm -hmm. Of course, the titular ice storm happens in the last act of the film as well. During this particular ice storm, Mikey goes out to rummage around and, and slide on things and puts himself in precarious situation after precarious situation. Christina Ricci winds up uh, finally getting naked with Sandy. Who's uh, like 10. Who's like 10. <laughs> and uh, they end up, you know, drinking some vodka and imitating their uh, parents mm -hmm. by laying naked together in the guest room bed of the Carver household. That they do. At this point, of course, to Elena, Joan Allen's character, is well aware of Kevin Klein's infidelity. And then Jim is also made aware of the infidelity. So Elena and Jim end up sleeping together in a really terrible, incredibly brief car sex uh, encounter that happens for all of maybe 10 seconds. Mm -hmm. They try to drive home together, wind up sliding off of the road. Kevin Klein is drunk in a bathroom and Mikey meets uh, the worst fate of all by sitting on a guardrail as the ice pulls down some power lines, electrocuting him and killing him. The film basically ends with Kevin Klein's character, Ben, encountering Mikey dead in the road, carrying him back to the Carver's house, and then going to pick up Paul uh, from the train station as he's been in New York for the evening, the evening trying to woo Libets. Mm -hmm. The film ends with Ben, Kevin Klein, finally just breaking into tears under the weight of it all and looking at his family. It's way darker when I say it uh, just in succession like that. Mm -hmm. It's an incredibly <laughs> intense film. It's a very intense film, um, but not again without moments of humor and just kind of just bizarre qualities that give it this almost kind of uh, ethereal and like 
mystical quality. Mm -hmm. A lot of the sort of psychic connections between the characters are the most interesting, I think. You know, Ang Lee does a really good job of evoking these in, in mirroring scenes, like I mentioned, between Sigourney Weaver and Kevin Klein in the bed and then Christina Ricci and little man Tate hanging out in bed as well. Also, the, the shoplifting scene. Like, there is no indication in the movie that Joan Allen is aware at all that Christina Ricci shoplifts and yet she behaves intrinsically and instinctually exactly like her daughter does yeah this kind of familial magic to all of that where everything sort of feels interconnected and intertwined in these weird ways Ang Lee does a really good job communicating the similarities between the children and the parents not just very literally in the things that they do but also in their emotional states, which is made all the more painful by how distant they all are from one another. Everyone is terrible at communicating with one another in this film. They're all experiencing so much of the same feelings of depression and searching for something, longing for escape, a mistrust with authority, mm. um, all of those things. They're They're all feeling a lot of the same feelings, but they cannot, for the life of them, reach out and actually meaningfully connect with one another. They're all living in the same house or spending time at each other's houses and are just ships passing in the night. And that's one of the things that you're struck by, even if you're not able to articulate what's painful about that in the moment, he really does a solid job of communicating it and showing you how how terribly ironic it is that they have so much in common, these people, um, with one another and cannot meet each other anywhere. It's uh, It goes to, I think, what sort of my central thesis was for what the film is saying and, and why it's so prevalent to the latter half of the 90s, as well as to our current era, which is this idea of like the political and social animus of the era sort of starting to bleed into the family, mm -hmm. into this sort of uh, archetypal idea of like the mid-century household, right. right? It is, you know, a, a byproduct of all of the sort of apexes of authority, all proving their fallibility and even selfish motives, mm -hmm. right? Nixon plays a pretty central and pivotal role to the backdrop of this film. And he's never anything that's referenced outright by a lot of the characters, as we mentioned, but the idea of the sort of leader of the free world, you know, someone who has the highest office and level of authority abusing that thing is certainly something that sent shockwaves throughout the culture and the society, especially to children who were looking for some authority to tell them and differentiate between right and wrong. Mm -hmm. And then we see the parents doing the same thing. All of these sort of model figures are stuck in their own bullshit and they are all struggling with their own strife and anger and depression and feelings of absolute listlessness and aimlessness. And it's something that, you know, the 70s, the late 70s, at least, was it was on this full display. We talked a little bit about this, I think, in our last episode, too, just this idea that about the great American nightmare having come to an end, but people reckoning with the idea that America was not really a world power anymore, that we were just sort of another nation among nations, that we um, didn't have any real claim to that that authority. And that's also a thing that we've touched on with the films of the 90s as well. I think that it's a really kind of prophetic thing and, and a brilliant parallel. Maybe why the film strikes such a nerve and a chord, you know, that, that same kind of 
feeling of the the security and that fabric and and safety of neoliberal American identity coming undone, especially in in the late '90s. You know, we've talked about the films of like '99 specifically being one where people are starting to reckon with this feeling that oh yeah, something is terribly wrong here. Something mm-hmm. is off. And if you think of this film in 97, late 97, almost as a precursor to that, like inviting us into that space that is saying, um, trying to tap into a reason or at least it, it exemplify the malaise that leads to that that understanding. Totally. I think that it makes a lot more sense. And this movie very narrowly predates our own version of a presidential scandal uh, with the brink of impeachment at play uh, with the Monica Lewinsky and Bill Clinton scandal that broke in 98. Almost prophetic. This movie is out in September of 97. Mm -hmm. Less than four months later, the first stories start to break about their sexual relationship. And this idea that you're talking about that we've discussed in, in other episodes about movies of the late 90s sort of reflecting back to us this mistrust with the powers that be, but not necessarily being able to articulate uh, or triangulate where those feelings are coming from. This movie plays beautifully into that thesis. And I think one of the things that Ang Lee does that other directors of movies in the late 90s that we've talked about don't do is he does actually triangulate where those feelings are coming from to a certain extent. He is a little a little bit more literate about the things that are causing this unease and this this restlessness that these people are feeling. Interesting that he's able to do so because he is removed from the western culture that bore it and uh and I think that's probably why he he is able to triangulate those things to use that word again in a way that other movies quite can't and other directors can't i read a little bit that ang lee was accused when this film was released of having a really conservative and really reactionary emotion and stance towards the sort of cultural revolution of Interesting. The era. that the movie almost plays like a morality tale that shows the the sort of brutal nature and the evils of, you know, sexual revolution and, and all those things. I think Disagree. that's I do too. And I think that's completely wrong. You know, you said that this film manages to triangulate the the root causes of things. And I think it's sort of trying to do that. But I think more than anything, what the film is doing is showing the shortcomings of the cultural avenue to answering society's questions. That's precisely my point. I'm not necessarily saying that he's offering up distinct answers for you know the 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 problems these uh these people are experiencing and and where they're emanating from but he does provide a larger backdrop for understanding why this sort of square peg round holing that was happening at the time was creating a lot of this uh a lot of these casualties of the modern family Absolutely. And, you know, earlier I said that I kind of hesitate to call the film as a whole satire. And the reason for that actually comes from a quote that I found from Ang Lee himself, which I just want to read, which is about uh, the, the meaning for him behind his portrayal of the characters. And he says, the period portrayed in the ice storm is innocent and good because people are rebelling against old rules and the old order. 
were jaded now, while the people of that era were very fresh and bold about reaching for their limits. What they encounter in the process is human nature and the ice storm, which gives you a little more respect for nature. It turns out that we're not that free after all. And I thought that was just like a really interesting distinction, one that, you know, tries to hold a mirror to the society of the late 90s by showing a parallel sort of culture in the early 70s -hmm. as well. You can kind of feel that there is definitely a compassion and a reverence for the characters. Absolutely. And, you know, he he does it very non-judgmentally, but does point out and holds up to the camera in full display their flaws, their shortcomings, and their fears. And I think what he's saying in that quote gives a lot of answers to to why that particular portrayal is there, which is I, it was a more innocent generation of people rebelling. And it was people trying all of these different cultural avenues to escape that human nature or, or that thing that feels natural, that sort mm-hmm. of like political and social ennui, that force that compels us and, and boxes us into these sort of irregular forms yeah and that it was the first generation of people really reckoning with that and learning the shortcomings of the answers they were seeking and then by the 90s you have that next generation who you know were growing up during that era they had to answer the same questions Mm -hmm. and we did it all over again and we continue to do it all over again we continue to do it i totally agree with you i in saying the movie is satirical, I, I'm not actually naming the movie a satire. And I think that quote definitely articulates some of the things I was trying to, you know, wind my way to about how he feels about the people in this movie. The tragedy that's inherent in the film comes from the really loving handling that Ang Lee has for these people, despite the fact that he is um, showing us their flaws. He does so in a way that has an understanding for why they may be flawed. And he he does all of that without being explicit about any of it, which I think makes it even more brilliant. And one of the things that's consistent throughout the movie that I think speaks to his understanding of their pathos, of of their pain, is um, very much in line with, with this argument you're making, which is that It's very clear that for all of these people, traditional pleasures are not cutting it. And they have to ratchet things up uh, and and go to more extreme resources for those pleasures being filled. And even in doing so, even in, you know, reaching for more extreme versions to fill the void of whatever it is they're looking for, it's almost as if they're numb to it all regardless. They've kind of burnt themselves dry of being able to feel anything, really, which is what makes the crying (laughs) from Ben, Kevin Klein's character at the end, so poignant because he's he's a sort of dry crisp of a human the entire (laughs) the entire film. And then he breaks down and you realize just how much he has to cry about. It's I think really noteworthy that at the end of this film, both of the female leads, Joan Allen and Sigourney Sigourney Weaver, have sort of insulated themselves more and receded further into their own uh, sort of shells and feelings. Like even, you know, Sigourney Weaver very symbolically resting in a waterbed in the fetal position, Mm -hmm. you know, this this sort of like desire to return to like a, a, you know, prenatal state. Yeah. Um, And 
both of the men breaking down emotionally, one, of course, over the death of his son and one over the experience of it all and just the weight of that dramatic heft. I don't think that that's without reason and purpose. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's a really fascinating way to end it. One other thing that this film does that I think manages to even further articulate that hollowness and that sort of just, uh, what's the word you use? Almost like dryness to all of it and, and sort of the, the facade is how they utilize the score. It is very distinctively using a lot of flute in a lot of traditional indigenous sounding music, mm-hmm. um, which along with a couple of key points in the movie, like I think about Christina Ricci's grace over the table at Thanksgiving talking about us like raping, burning and pillaging uh, Native American lands. Dear Lord, thank you for this Thanksgiving holiday and for all the material possessions that we have and enjoy and for letting us white people kill all the Indians and steal their tribal lands and stuff ourselves like pigs, even though children in Asia are being napalmed. Jesus, enough, all right. There's also the famous Iron Eyes Cody commercial um, about keeping America beautiful where where he sheds a single tear after someone litters. All of these things managed to, to put this very classical place, you know, on the on the East Coast where like some of our first uh, European settlers came in this context of the thing that we built having no resolute answer and and no real authority and to, to guide us to any sort of higher echelon of understanding or peace or happiness. And then it's all built on land claimed through violence. It's all built on death and destruction and disease and extreme violence and just the all of the evils that man is capable of. And it's something that so easily could have been left out of this story that managed to do something almost preternaturally that is really astounding. Mm-hmm. Like for, from the from the opening notes of the movie, you are put in a place where you're like, oh, this is it almost it's, it feels anachronistic and very deliberately so. Yeah, I was just really wowed by it. And and it makes it so, like you said, like like they don't use it often, but when they do, it's executed with a very precise intention and delivery to to really spark your interest and make sure that it is pronounced and noticeable. That anachronicity is apparent on several different levels that the film is operating on. Sonically, yes, and I think in a lot of the visual mapping of the movie. One example is the fact that these these homes are in these beautiful forests of East Coast America. And, you know, the leaves are orange and all the colors of, of the rainbow and there's greens and blues and it's just a, a beautiful natural backdrop. But these houses are these weird postmodern blocks yeah. of very severe architecture. The Carver household specifically is like hyper postmodern and has like big open like tall windows and it's and- gray and the the windows like are bringing the nature in but they're also keeping the nature at a distance. Uh also just like speaks to this idea of the sort of square peg round hole, right? You have this odd sort of monstrosity of a home in this beautiful, beautiful landscape. And then there are also things like at the party that they go to, uh, where Alice and Janie is the hostess. That house, by contrast, is filled with 
a ton of antiques and is decorated very traditionally. And yet all the things that are happening on the inside of it are extremely non-traditional, very anti-establishment, right. very anti-nuclear like nuclear family. And, and there are just a lot of moments like that in, in the movie. And I think on the period details in particular, one of the things that I read that really resonated with me is that, so the period details, first and foremost, are done really beautifully um, and really accurately. Yeah. There are times when they feel strange. And I think that's because they are rendered with such realism. There isn't this sort of caricaturing or kind of cartoonish nature that we tend to do with a lot of period details from 50s, 60s, and 70s. And and the the realism that these period details are rendered with, I think, speaks to the kind of strangeness of the time and the lunacy of the time where, again, if we're going back to this idea of just trying to find our way, trying to make sense of a thing that doesn't quite make sense, the dress and the architecture and the decorations and all of the visual details of the period speak to that idea of, you know, a kind of manic society trying to figure itself out, trying to figure out how to rebel. But, you know, it's being done in these like nuclear homes of East Coast white elite families. At the end, when Elijah Wood's character is venturing out into um, the forest, he's really the only one out of any of the people in the movie that is interested in nature and is sort of fascinated by what's happening outside of the walls of the home. Right. He has that... Uh, interesting essay that he writes about molecules during his chemistry class. Yeah. And what was his... He had something so interesting about the way they... Basically that when you go into the bathroom after someone, you're effectively consuming their poop through molecules. Molecules. Because of molecules, we are connected to the outside world from our bodies. Like when you smell things. Because when you smell a smell, it's not really a smell. It's part of the object that has come off of it. Molecules. So when you smell something bad, it's like, in a way, you're eating it. So the next time you go into the bathroom after someone else has been there, remember what kind of molecules you are, in fact, eating. And so when he goes out into the ice storm, when everyone else is inside or at a party or, you know, in a car or whatever, he's out in it and he's jumping around in it and he's smelling things and he's playing with ice and he's running up right against the danger of the natural world. And it's the thing that leads to his downfall. He, The reason he dies is because he's watching in awe this sort of flailing downed power line and in his awe, he reclines and sits on the the metal guard of of the road, and then is electrocuted by the very thing that he's he's fascinated with. And I I might be reading too much into this, but that felt important to me. That felt like these people are looking for something. And Elijah's character is the one that actually goes out and tries to connect with something bigger than himself to become more grounded uh, or even to just, you know, sort of explore the meaning of it all, right? The science behind why we're here. And it's the thing that leads to his death. And I don't know what to think about that beyond, 
I just think that that is there for a reason. It, uh, I think it goes into, you know, part of what Aang says about reckoning with nature, right? Whether that's human nature or, or the natural order of things, right? And, and just how much respect we lack for those things and, and, right. and for those sort of like natural essences of that. And, and I don't think that what he means there is like tradition. What I think he means there is like the actual natural order of things and how everything that we seek to do is sort of uh, to feel a rebellion against that communion between nature and self. Mm-hmm. Um, interesting too, you know, that Mikey, Elijah Wood's character is always the one too who is criticized of being a total space cadet and just like perpetually zoned out, right? Mm -hmm. Like he's like called a stoner by his friends and like is never paying attention. It always is because there is sort of this intuition that he has that he's more connected to the things outside of those interactions that everyone is hyper attuned to, you know, all the the little minutiae of the social orders. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's also something that technically... Aang comes back to repeatedly, he reserves until sort of the end of the movie and in a couple of choice moments, a lot of the close-ups exclusively for elements of nature. Mm -hmm. He does so with tree branches and with like icicles and with pools of water and and mud and leaves. And in one of my favorite shots in the entire movie, and one that actually makes it to that aforementioned DVD cover, (laughs) he is focused on ice and frost developing on a window and we see uh, Mikey in his big orange puffer jacket walking behind it and he's obfuscated and sort of pixelated by his vision through the glass or and, and through the ice and, and he just is sort of this orange shape that moves mm-hmm. past it but just beyond it and, and out of our out of our, our line of clarity and I think that that's a very deliberate transition into that space that's exemplified through the visuals as well. But uh, he just has such a, a, like I said, you know, a reverence for the people, yes, but also for all of the sort of natural order of things and and all of those little moments that we often unplug from in favor of of being hyper-focused on our hierarchical social order. And I think he's offering that as an answer to this question that we're perpetually asking, or at least that there may be something found and felt that's more real and more connecting and restorative than much more baser escapes like alcohol and drugs and sex and and the ways in which we try to make sense of a world that really doesn't make sense. Part of the answer there is not the reactionary thing that he's accused of by Mm -hmm. some people, but just acknowledging the unnaturalness of those things. Like he's not asking us to betray those things or to remove those things from our existence. I think what he's more trying to shape is something that has a healthier balance of communion between the two. Yeah, I definitely disagree with this uh, sort of morality test reading of the film. I I I don't think that there's judgment leveled at a single character in this movie. No, he is highly sympathetic to all of the characters. Even Ben, who's the most detestable and laughable of all of the characters, he is the one that closes the movie with his tears. Yeah. <laughs> and I definitely I definitely felt the heart that, that Mr. Lee has for all of these characters. And I think the other thing that I'll, I'll say, and then I'll shut up about it, but the thing that felt textured to me about the ways he conveys uh, a white... East Coast elite 
is not the sort of panned, like shorthand version that we get so readily and regularly in a lot of a lot of things that uh, might be trying to make some sort of commentary on these people. He acknowledges their wealth. He acknowledges the distance that it may afford them from the nature that they are surrounded by, from the people in their household, from other people in the country who are working class, who are living in the city, who are fill in the blank. He acknowledges the wealth, he acknowledges the distance it may afford them, but he does not punish them for it. Instead, he almost offers it as a reason for their searching, for their flaws, and doesn't use it to point the finger at them, but instead uh, uses it as a way to help us understand the characters more. It's not class warfare is what I'm trying to say. There's no, (laughs) there's no like eat the rich mentality here at all. There's no eat the rich mentality here. (laughs) And yeah, I think one of the things that strikes me as we're discussing it is, you know, one of these, if I'm drawing parallels between the 70s when the film is set, the 90s when the film is released, and now uh, in, in the current moment that we're watching it is all of these all of these eras have sort of this distinct and profound feeling in absence of justice and reconciliation. Mm-hmm. You know, that it, it that it's a fleeting thing hoping for for order to come out on the side of just expectation. Right. Right. And and we saw that with, you know, Nixon sort of getting off scot-free and these characters being left in a place of disillusionment, not because of what's happening politically, but because of the social order of their lives, not giving a satisfying answer. In the 90s, we have the same thing, right? Where politically and economically and socially, we are being told that the answer is right there in front of us. This sort of consumption, this mentality of open markets, of of the boom of technology, and all of those things come up short as well. And come literally crashing down. Years, a few few years later, right? Like 2001, I think Mm -hmm. is, you know, the tech bubble goes down and then 2008, the housing crisis, like all of these things are... Are hollow shells, you know, they're they're uh, straw men that we've built up, mm-hmm. and then in the current moment, we're feeling the ramifications of that thing, and an era that was meant to and defined by this sort of moniker of hope and an idea of change that did not come to fruition, and now we're sitting sort of at the cusp of a new era where, thankfully, Donald Trump is not our president anymore. Assuming that all this bullshit (laughs) goes the way it's supposed to. But we're not being given a really resolute alternative in the sense of that kind of feeling of reconciliation and justice. And this is coming up now, like, who knows what the story will be in a few more days from now when this episode is actually live for you all to listen to. But as of right now, there's like a coup slash not a coup happening that is equal parts just bizarre and infuriating and utterly stupid. And... From the alternative side, there is still, I think, not a successful and uh, rewarding answer as it pertains to some level of justice and reconciliation as as best as we can hope for, you know? No, the alternative is just the absence of the terrorizing giant, not something imaginative and restorative and 
uh, substantive in its own right. It's just not the other thing. It's just and and that is not going to lead to reconciliation, to restoration, to upending of the status quo, to the things that these people in the seventies, in the nineties, now are looking for. Right, and we may end up cutting all of this out, but I, I you know, a, a few hours ago, and by the time that this thing, like I said, is is live for you all, the official announcement will be made. Like I think the Secretary of State. Under Joe Biden is going to be a guy named Tony Blinken, who's another one of these like uh, multimillionaire, like corporate lobbyist people who worked in the private sector and like, you know, this con- consulting firm along with like Michelle Flournoy and, and other people, more of the same. And a lot of the talks right now are all about the ways in which we can unify and rectify the nation through not going after Donald Trump, through not asking that Donald Trump faces uh, justice on behalf of the Biden administration. To which I say, like, that is more of the same, right? It, it, it feels like a repeat of 2008 when George W. Bush got off scot-free. It feels like a repeat of 1974 when Nixon walked away without having to atone for anything that he did while in the presidency. And also just speaks to a, a completely feckless Democratic Party. One just without any scruples present at all. And and that is a, an excellent shorthand for the, the types of politics that they wield as well, which is like, there's nothing substantive there. It's just not the other thing. So and it feels better just because it's not that. This is going to be a stretch, but I think about it in terms of, you know, one of the principal challenges facing our society within the next few years and within the next decade, which is this idea of truly changing society and finding that re-communion with nature uh, in the form of climate justice and actually taking care of a planet and figuring out a way to repurpose and adjust our society to fit into the parameters necessary to make sure that we are able to perpetuate something and find some semblance of cohesion and happiness. Yeah, have a world to live on. Precisely. To, to bitch at each other out <laughs> on. <laughs> and it just seems like things are coming up short again. It just seems like a repeat and this sort of, you know, cyclical, circuitous nature of the same malaise. Uh, you know, maybe that's a, a kind of bitter perspective to have on it. Maybe it's, you know, it's a little jaded, but it, it is, you know, at equal parts revolting and fascinating to see the ways in which the same kind of uh, feeling that is on display in the film in the 90s about the 70s has perpetuated itself through another generation without a definitive answer. Yeah, and it is the answer, right? It is the reason that it comes back is because there is no resolution. There is just a return to normalcy, verbatim, right? That is what people want. And I think we are at the point after several cycles of this, of of decades on decades, that many of us know that a return to normalcy is not the answer and certainly not the thing that is going to save the most of us. We need radical change. And that is the thing that people have been calling for since the 70s, since the 50s, since Many, many decades. But it doesn't look like the release of the Cultural Revolution, right? It doesn't look like the sexual no, it exploration. Look it doesn't like look Black like Black Lives the Matter painted on, on a sidewalk. It looks like real material gains for the people who have the least. 
and actually doing the work of saving our planet in a way that puts the profits and the needs and the desires of the corporations that are killing it at a an exponentially rapid rate, putting those things aside. Yeah. And actually putting the planet first and making new jobs while we're at it. Let's talk about the Green New Deal, people. No, we won't. No, but um, yes, I, I agree with you. It's it's totally eerie and and fascinating and also extremely disquieting that this is a point on the circle that we come back to and continue to come back to decade after decade. If things continue on that trajectory, you all get to look forward to uh, me crying behind the wheel of a vehicle with my family oh my sometimes God, I do soon. that every day already. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's kind of a weird note to end it on. But I, if there's anything that I want you to take away from this, it's that The Ice Storm is a really brilliant, lovely movie. It's a beautiful movie. It is one that I uh, don't... Definitely ret- not the ref. It's not the ref. <laughs> watch it over Thanksgiving break. Right, it's a great time to watch. While you're social distancing and doing your due diligence right. to flatten the curve. Whether you can safely be with the family or not, We hope that you make the right choice. And uh, I think that's really it. Watch the ice storm. Watch the ice storm. Uh, We are, as always, available to follow at Hit Factory Pod. Uh, You can also subscribe to our premium content at patreon.com slash hitfactorypod. As we've mentioned previously, we are donating all of our Patreon proceeds for the entire month of November to a wonderful organization called Labor Notes. Uh, It is a publication and platform by and for rank and file labor members and activists to help them organize and unionize and generally just fight for greater worker protections in our society needed now more than ever Um, it's a great organization we're happy to give to them and uh, we will have more of these coming to you through quarantine and beyond thanks everyone thanks everyone the old school yeah old school we the old school yeah old school been getting that money for a girl sweet as honey got me some roses and a little bling I knocked on her door, she said, what you waiting for? I heard you was looking for a king. Been climbing the pyramid, her steps made of green. I'm getting closer. Getting closer. To my little queen.